0: Tonight, uh, what we're up to is we are now in the fourth week of our series on Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. And it's kind of maybe fitting in some ways that we started the way that we did, because I want to tell you right out of the front uh, tonight that this is the week that the goal is for us to get personal. It's the week for us to get personal, not practical, but personal. There's a difference between those two things, right? Practical and personal, I thought a lot about that this week, about those two things. Here's, here's my hypothesis. I think being practical has to do with how we actually go about doing something that we intend to do. I think being personal has to do with why we do it. I think the difference is a, it's a how versus a why. As we've been looking at the letters of the Galatians so far, we spent... A lot of time over the last three weeks trying to understand the ideas that the Galatians are wrestling with, as well as the ideas behind Paul's decision to confront them about the things they have been up to in this specific letter. And what we looked at what's really at stake here and the decisions that many of the Gentile Christians have been making here to adopt these formal laws of the Torah, these formal laws. Of Moses is this way of living a more measurably Christian life. But that's their objective, is, is they don't have the same Jewish background that Jewish Christians do, and they want to know how to live a more measurably Christian life. And so for the men in the Galatian community, this has led to this decision to undergo the process of, of adult circumcision. And they've been doing this so that they can better look the part literally, of God's chosen and set-apart people. And for the women in the community who don't show up as as much in this letter, but what we do know is that it has led among the women of the Galatian community also to adopt a more conventionally Jewish calendar of feast days and also to adopt more rigid gender roles in their gatherings and the ways that they participate in worship together. And the Galatian churches have made these changes, Paul says, because they have fixated on the how. They fixated on what's practical. They have believed this good news about Jesus. They've converted from practicing the local or the Roman religions that they grew up with, and they want to be this part of this growing Jesus movement called the Way. But in pursuit of being a part of that Jesus movement, they seem to have set aside the why a little bit. They've set aside their personal passion for what Jesus' love and God's God's grace has transformed within them in pursuit of that how, of that practical, pragmatic way of looking more Christian. And so in the fourth chapter of Paul's letter, he summarizes his confusion and even his grief over this shift that he keeps hearing about in this community like this. He writes this. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I think it's easy to kind of breeze past all of this section when we read this letter. To see in the Galatians, in people who are who are doing something frankly unusual to us, to see in the Galatians this picture of somebody that we would never be. We're not legalists at least in the way they are, right? We're not turning to something as bizarre and unrelatable in our own context as adult circumcision. But of course, like the, the object tonight is to actually caution against moving so fast over this text, to caution against moving so quickly over what's going on with the Galatians, and actually to pause to let this letter hover over us just a little bit tonight. We don't talk all that often about convictions. But I think tonight is a good night to try. So, what is it we actually believe about how people can go about living a Christian life? What do we believe? And even more importantly, what do we believe about why anybody should do that? What is practical to us? What is personal? The teaching of our church is that. Even though the laws of Scripture and the rules of Judaism are useful for revealing God's intentions for human beings and how we should live in relation to Him and to one another and in relation to the rest of creation, the actual authority that we are under is the Holy Spirit of God, who we believe comes to live within us when we become Christians. This is what I actually believe and what I have actually experienced in my own Life that there's a spirit, the spirit of God is living within me who convicts me of sin in my life and guides me towards living as I'm called to live. That's Christian life, as we would define it here and as I would define it. Now, I don't always listen to that spirit that's within me. In fact, I often downright resist and ignore that spirit that is in me. But I believe that he is there. I remember when I was a kid, I asked my mom once, and I think I'm told, I say this all the time, but like, there are no stories left. I'm sorry. There are no stories of my life left. I've spent all of them in the last, like, eight years preaching in this church. But, so you've heard this, I apologize. But I remember when I was a kid, and I was was baptized when I was seven, so I became a Christian really young, on my seventh birthday, as a matter of fact. And I asked my mom once as I was getting older and growing up in the church, how do I know, how do I know that I'm really saved? I didn't have that memory of, like, my, my wayward, sinful life before I was, like, washed in the blood, right? Like, I didn't – I didn't, couldn't remember the terrible things I did at five or six that had, like, so strongly convicted me of my sin that I had to convert. I just had always been a Christian. And so I would ask her, like, how do I know if I'm saved? I know that I still make mistakes. I'm still sinning. So, like, how does that square? How does this work? I think my mom's answer to me when I ask her, like, how do I know if this is real? I think her answer was incomplete, it's theologically incomplete answer. So if you meet my mom sometime, tell her, like, you should have done better with your seven-year-old with, like, deeper and more rooted theology. But despite it being an incomplete answer, it has been an important and a, continu- and, and a comforting answer to me throughout my life. It's still an important and comforting answer. But she said this. So my question, my question is, how do I know? Why am I still sinning? And she's, how do I know this is real? And she said, she said, it's the Holy Spirit who shows you your mistakes. And if you can sense them and feel truly sorry for them, then you know that the Spirit is still in you. And I say that that answer is incomplete because. It is of course true that lots of people feel that way when they when they do things that are wrong. Lots of people feel guilt when they do things that are wrong, even if they are people who become Christians. But her answer was her answer was helpful to me because it reminded me of something important, which is of the importance of how I respond to that feeling of guilt. Do I own a mistake when I make one? And do I accept forgiveness for a mistake? When I confess it. Am I compelled not just to feel bad, but to try and make it right? It's the whole of that work that reassures me of my faith when I have doubts that there's a spirit within me that I want to listen to, not just talking to me, but one that I want to listen to, because I trust that spirit is working out good things in my life and working out good. So if the how of transformation, what Christians have long called sanctification, is this indwelling and transforming work of the Holy Spirit within us, the why is that crucial trust that we feel that first, God really does know us and love us, and second, that it is possible for us to want to love him back, that we're capable of that trust that love with the creator of the universe. And as fuzzy and as vague as this can sometimes be, this trust that something real is actually happening inside of us in all of this religion that matters. So the question is, do you feel this way too? As mysterious as it is, do you trust that God not only exists That God not only knows you, that God not only loves you, but that God is actively healing and transforming you. Because I think that's not an easy thing for us to hold on to. Paul says this, he says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I think what he's asking is this. He's asking, why have you stopped trusting that the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit within you is enough? Why have you stopped trusting that the Holy Spirit work within you is enough? It's a good question. How would you answer it? Why do you sometimes stop trusting that the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit within you is enough? Why do I so frequently stop trusting that the Holy Spirit within me is enough? The pursuit of rules, as we've said for this whole series, as we've said this whole year, the pursuit of rules is a pursuit of certainty. It's a pursuit of some mechanical system that can replace the organic and the spiritual nature of what came first, which was that deeply personal moment of surrender in your life to a loving and a generous and a gracious God. In a culture that's dominated by reason and dominated by philosophy, as Greek culture was and as our own culture still is, that kind of surrender can feel terrible, Put us in a place that feels fragile and difficult to stay. So it's easy for the Galatians, and I would counter or add, it's easy for us to think of that moment of surrender that, that's like the starting point of our faith, that moment of what we would call Christian conversion, as just like an initial stage of humility that may have been necessary to, to turn our hearts around, to dissolve our pride and our resistance. To faith. But once we're past it, once we're past that, like, ugly, awful surrender moment, we're no, long, we're no longer going to be dominated by those sinful desires anymore. So we can grow up from that, like, childish and emotional and, like, decision that came from this place of weakness into something that's more mature and more rational, a place of rules and obedience and, like, patterns and systems of growth. And I know that, like, you may have tuned out there for a second. Maybe I have felt like he is rant- he's talking like he is passionate about something, but it is gibberish to me. I get that. I know it sounds abstract, but it, I think what I'm describing is actually an infection that still controls how we think of living our Christian lives. It has never stopped being an infection. I think we see it all the time in our church systems, right, in our systems of discipleship. Or training or teaching. I'm guilty of this all the time as your preacher. We put our emotions, we put our active trust in these mysteries of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, these myster- these fundamentally mysterious things. We put our active trust in those mysteries aside so we can get to the work and get to the work of teaching scripture turning scripture into action steps for being a better Christian I do this all the time almost every Saturday I write a sermon and at the end I'm like oh yeah but we've got to, like they've got to like walk out with three things to do that's the way this goes or they won't be discipled well what Paul is telling us is that it is a mistake I think to let the practical Trump the personal To our faith. And the reason that it's a mistake is because God's goal with us is a deeper rewiring in us than just a shift in the ways that we behave. The Bible says over and over again that God looks at our heart because I think it's the heart that leads us to empathy, that leads us to love, that leads us to kindness the actual hope, it's the heart that actually resonates most closely with who he keeps saying he is. The good news the good news, has to be something that gets deeper in us than just securing our salvation. And that is something that we Christians have missed almost from the very, very beginning. And Galatians helps us remember that. We've always been tempted think that salvation is what this is all about. But the truth is that God's goal isn't to get us as we are into heaven. That's not what he came for. His goal is to transform us into people of heaven. That heaven might be felt by others wherever we are. Don't grow up from the mystery your faith. Grow into it. Grow into it. (coughs) Paul writes this in the next verses. He writes, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Again, let's get past it, but pause for a second look at this before the Galatians were maturing Christians before the Galatians were growing up into adult people of of spiritual faith before any of that they had this pure and selfless love among them that was evident in their treatment of Paul he remembers that but now Something has happened in their relationship that Paul feels has made the Galatians less hospitable as they have matured in their faith. It's made them less hospitable. So, I'm going to ask two hard questions, and I'm not going to rush to answer them. I'm going to let them hang for a minute. The first question is this. After 2,000 years of maturing, do you feel that Christians are more known for their kindness, their generosity, and their love than they used to be. Are you? We may not be rushing to observe Jewish festivals, we may not be pursuing adult circumcision, but we are still Galatians. What have we done? We've chased certainty and systems of rule following. We have dressed those symptoms, not those symptoms, a little Freudian slip. We've dressed those systems up as maturity, as discipleship. And we have allowed the spirits of judgmentalism and legalism that those things foster to justify unkindness in us and even a growth of our unkindness. And when these rigid structures that we have built up and are relying on and calling Christian faith, when those things inevitably crack in divisions or in corruption or in scandal, then we walk away from the whole thing because it looks like our faith has let us down. But would those things have happened? Would any of that have happened? We had held on to the mystery. Would they have happened if we had made our personal trust in the discovery of God's love for us and the transforming conviction and guidance of the Holy Spirit within us, if we had made that our top priority over and above what seemed practical and certain. I know that sometimes... Our little church can feel under programmed. We have small groups, right? But those small groups rarely work through a particular fixed curriculum. We have service teams, but the most that we ever ask you if you might, like when it comes to those, is we'll ask you sometimes if you're interested in joining them and you know, like giving people assignments. We preach baptism, but we don't have big commitment Sundays where we like fill up a tub at the front and hope and expectation and faith. We encourage community service and our announcements and the things that Claire shares every week in the loop. We'll talk about it, we encourage community service, but we don't rally ourselves as a church around a lot of like revolution branded outreach programs. And whether it's wise or not, there is a reason for all of this and the reason... The reason for all this is because, because we want you to want this. We want you to want this. The conviction to do church, to be a part of this, to do any of those things, shouldn't be coming from up here, from me. It has to come from the Holy Spirit working inside of you. Your small group needs to be a place that's important to you because it's a place where you actually feel loved and you feel safe. And it's a place where you can be honest about the places that you're struggling, especially when what you're struggling with is your faith. And my fear is that a fixed curriculum in those groups is going to help you learn a lot of cool things. But it's going to rob you of a chance to wrestle with what the Holy Spirit is saying to you alongside your friends. This church, as you know, desperately needs folks to step into our teams. I say it all the time, like we have it every week in the announcements. I don't even change it, it's just the bottom line. Please join the kids, the kids service team. And like, you know, we need that. We desperately need it. So do other community-focused organizations around Annapolis. Revolution isn't the only organization that's struggled with volunteers over the last three years. Every nonprofit in Annapolis is struggling with volunteers. They all need somebody. But if your reason for serving at this church, or your reason for serving at Lighthouse Shelter, or your reason for serving somewhere else, is an obligation or fear of missing out on something. If that's the reason you're doing it, then serving is going to ultimately be a bigger obstacle to your ability to listen to the Holy Spirit and to experience spiritual health and spiritual healing, then it will be an aid to that. I pray every week that folks in our church are going to respond to the Holy Spirit by choosing to be baptized. It's part of my my weekly prayer routine that that's going to happen. But I'm also committed to not trying to engineer that response by the way that we hold service. It has to be something that is an actual response to a genuine discovery inside of you that the God of the whole universe loves you more fully ...than you ever knew you were capable of being loved. It is the depth of the mystery of our faith... ...that can inspire life-changing curiosity... ...and passion and obedience in us. It is not the volume of our certainty... ...that does those things. Paul warns the Galatians about choosing certainty... ...over the divine mystery... The how over the why, the practical over the personal. He writes this. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children. For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. When you preach a system, you engender love for that system. Our planting pastor at Revolution, Josh Burnett, used to say it like this He would say, What you win people with is what you win them to. Back in our earlier days as a church, this mantra led us at a point to move away from our early habit of setting up our weekly worship services as this kind of spectacle for people to come see. And to shift that towards services that we hoped were more participatory because we were experiencing numerical growth at a time, but we were experiencing that in real engagement. It turned out, turned out, predictably maybe. That putting on a show every week led to a church of people who mostly just wanted to see shows. And in the years since, we've pivoted as a church. Our priority here at Revolution has been trying to build a church family of seekers. Where everybody can feel secure in their friendships, safe in their questions, supported in their pursuit of this deeper relationship with Jesus. And what I'm realizing this year, as we read through Scripture, as we do all of this, thinking about the power of uncertainty in our faith, our theme for the year, what I'm realizing is that we need to focus even more deeply than we have been on our why. On our why. Does revolution exist because there's good work to be done in Annapolis? Does revolution exist because this ragtag and beautiful little community that we've got ...would struggle to exist as Christians without it. Those seem like good reasons. But what if our existence is actually supposed to be the result of something even deeper than those reasons? What if the reason there was a revolution, church, was because the Holy Spirit... ...working freely and unmistakably in each one of us in this room right now... ...simply made it so... What if, what if the reason we existed is because the Holy Spirit made our existence unavoidable? Made it impossible for us to imagine what it would be like to be a Christian and to pursue our faith alone without this group of people around us. What if we were all so in love with the mystery of our faith? If we were all so at rest in God's love for us? So excited by the fruit the Holy Spirit is bringing to bear in our lives all the time that it simply doesn't make sense for us not to show up each week to share and to celebrate all of that with one another. I don't think, I really don't think that that has to be some hype dream or some fantasy or some just like end of sermon talk about some dream about what a church could be. I don't. I think we can be that. But what it takes to be that is commitment, not to this church, not to this church, but a commitment to listening to the Holy Spirit within you. Trusting that you know enough about God's heart for you, that you know enough about God's character, that you know enough about God's history of faithfulness towards his people, that you know enough about God to let your guard down with Him. And when you do that, remembering that there is this family of people who know you and who are seekers right alongside you. And that we want to grow together. Not so that we can become some exclusive club for extra mature Christians, but because, because we're experiencing that God is up to something among us. And we want to experience, scratch that. We can't imagine experiencing that without each other. Paul closes this section of his letter by saying this, by saying the kind of thing that it's, again, easy to nod along to. It sounds kind of like a catchy political slogan, even. But it's something that I think can be absolutely life-changing if we stop and wrestle with it just a little bit. He writes, at the beginning of Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You can believe that. We can live this out together. It is a divine mystery how trusting the God of the universe with all of yourself can set all of us free.